What's up, Accelerators? Welcome to Normalize It, the show where we speak about and explore the business of disability inclusion and accessibility. I'm your host, Cam Baudouin, and on each episode, I'll be interviewing leaders, professionals, and people with lived experiences, and we'll be discussing the challenges, successes, and strategies on how to make this world a more inclusive place. As you know, many organizations are still trying to figure out disability inclusion through a trial and error method. That's inefficient. Stick around to the end of the show to find out how we can fix that. So whether you're an advocate, entrepreneur, business owner, stakeholder, VP, or just someone who's interested in the world of disability inclusion, this show is for you. Let's dive into it. Mike, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Kim. Well, I think when you were at um, Access U this year, you gave the keynote speech. And what I was learning and while I was listening to you talk was, was just the breadth of knowledge that you have and experience in the industry because just because you've been you've been in it for so long you've been deep in it for so long what i like hearing from people who have been in the industry for just so long is the perspective you know you've seen it back when the technology was not what it is today whenever i speak to somebody who has that perspective they say don't forget how much has already changed we can't forget about the progress that we've already made and we should celebrate that too so so uh any thoughts around that yeah, well, first of all, not to correct you on your on your own show, but I didn't give the keynote at XSU. I gave it at CSUN. That was it. Sorry, probably, yeah, probably what you were thinking of. Yeah, right? yeah. I have talked. I have I have done them at XSU, but not not this year. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, when I started, and it's almost scary to think about it, but when I started down this path in the early '80s, everything was about hardware for more. You know, for all intents and purposes, especially around people with disabilities and technology and what was, you know, we, we talked about voice synthesizers and deck talk. I worked at digital equipment back then. Everything was still on a board. And if you look, just take that snapshot, we're, you know, 30 years, 35, 40 years, 40 years from then. And where we are today, the web, the internet, you know, social networking, uh, VR, AR, you know, AI is the accomplishments that we have made are something to be really proud of and to champion, which is what we're seeing in the industry. Yeah, and even just being able to have the conversation. I remember I started almost eight years ago now in the world of accessibility. I started at IBM, uh, as many people on the show know. Uh, I and, and it was, you know, WCAG 2.0. And I was walking around the office sharing the the Darth Vader music. And for anyone who needs it, Darth Vader music is quite ominous. And you know, people, I, I would come with that fear tactic and say, you know, here I am, the accessibility guy is coming around and I, I'd walk into meetings and, and people, oh, you know, the accessibility guy. And I've completely changed the way I speak about it instead of that fear and, and threatening. You know, now I'm talking about, hey, what are we doing about accessibility? And it seems that the conversation is now no longer, what is that? But now it's that, oh yeah, like, you know, let's talk about that. At least we're we're able to start that conversation. Totally agree. That, that, that whole conversation, terms like accessibility and inclusion have become mature industry and, and frankly, vernacular for, for community at large. Uh, it used to be that we would talk about Section 508 and WCAG like you were, and people were like, what, what are those things? That's not true anymore. Um, the ADA and, and, and the various derivatives of the ADA that, that um, you know, encompass the rest of the earth and, and, and the other countries that are out there, um, again, are not new. Uh, but the problems are still there. The challenges are still there. So, um, you know, individuals like myself that have watched 40 years of this, of this uh, life cycle, you know, to sort of speak, are still kind of scratching our heads and say, what, what do we do? Do we create more fear? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not a proponent of fear, 
Um, unfortunately, sometimes people, there are some people that only respond to a stick, you know, and I, I prefer a carrot approach and, and trying to get, get organizations and leaders and companies to buy into um, inclusion in users with disabilities, make that investment without having to be cornered by compliance. Absolutely. Yeah. And I try to think of myself as like, as a coach really more than anything else, because imagine if you were a fitness coach, what would you need to do to encourage your client to do something right? Sometimes you got to sit there and tell them, look, you're paying for, for me to tell you what to do. You're, you're losing money by not going to the gym and listening to my diet plan, my meal plan. You're, you're not taking your supplements like you're supposed to, you know, your body is going to fail you if you don't get to the gym and, and work the way that your doctor or that you've told me that you want to like the goals that you want to achieve. So what do we need to do to get you there? And then there's the other side of that, which is if you're working out, you're you know, lifting weights or something and your coach is there screaming, saying, good job, like keep it up, keep pushing, keep pushing. And when I start to think of myself as more of that like coach, and it could be like a financial coach or fitness coach or business coach, that coaching mindset helps me overcome some of those those feelings of, ah, I can't believe we're still, you know, we're still talking about it because I'll guarantee you that if you go to any gym and you talk to the fitness coach, there, they're still saying, man, I can't believe I still have to convince people to come into the gym every single day. Yeah, yeah, that's a great analogy. I, I love it. I, I, I think the mental part of that, it's, it's interesting. I, I have a close friend of mine that is a, a coach, right? He, he is a gymnastics coach, as a matter of fact. And uh, so I started talking a little bit more and I said, oh, okay, so you're working with them and their moves and, and keeping it fit and the things that they do. I said, no, no, my, my specialty is mental. Is their mental is their mental game, and he gave me some examples of how you know gymnasts the the mental mindset of you know doing you know a balance beam uh, type uh, operation, what that takes to do a flip and a twirl and those things there, and it's true when you and I watch it and we watch it, how in the world are they pulling this off? I mean, because I'm always thinking I'm afraid I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to I'm afraid of falling off that thing or you know taking a bad tumble, and he said they go through that same thing. So the coaches are there. And again, just to bring it back to our discussion today, isn't it true that probably 50% of what we're talking about is a mindset, right? We used to always talk about the accessibility mindset, the user mindset at that, at that level. We need to get you know, the rest of the world on board and, and convince them, A, this is important. B, it can't be done. It can, it can be done and, and, and C, you are the one that can lead it and do it. Right, right. Encouraging people to 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 embody that. Right. I I talk to clients about this quite often. Who people who don't know, don't care, aren't aware. You know, like that mindset. Just because you're not aware of of something doesn't mean that you can't learn it. You can't can't be empathetic towards it. You can't get to that point, right? And once I like accessibility because once you open that Pandora's box, you can't put anything back in. You know, someone can't like uncare about it once they've started to embody that as part of it. So, uh, but there's one term that you talk about and that I want to kind of touch on here and it's called pervasive accessibility. And I, and I love that term because really, what is it to be pervasive? It's in everything that we do, right? So why don't you tell us a little bit more about what pervasive accessibility is in your mind, where that came from? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So the first time I heard it was back, actually back in 1991. Um, I was still working at Digital Equipment Corporation at that particular time. Uh, the World Congress on Technology, Accessible Technology, was the first event that was thrown. It was down in Washington, D.C. 
And um, we had at, at that time was I believe he was our chief technology officer, may have been uh, chief engineering officer. His name was David Stone, a visionary in and of his own. And we asked him if he would give the keynote. So he gave the keynote at that at that event. And he was the first one that actually used that term. He wanted to create basically a pervasive accessible infrastructure. And he talked about how he talked then about how, uh, you know, today we rely on personal assistive technologies, right? So a user has a, you know, a screen reader, screen magnifier on the software side. Maybe they've got a talking board on the, on the hardware side, but it's all personalized. It's my device that lets me interact with the rest of the world on a technology level, right? Because I'm, I'm kind of speaking strictly from, from that standpoint. And he said, what we really need, the, the problem is, which is still true today, is that the personal technology can't keep up with mainstream technology. Right, right. right? That's, that is really it in a nutshell. Absolutely. So how do we create, and this is where pervasive accessibility comes in play, how do we create a worldwide, not web, but a worldwide infrastructure that rather than having a user adapt to the interface, mm -hmm. the interface adapts to the user, right? And that becomes something pervasive throughout uh, throughout the, throughout the technology field. I, I do limit it to uh, you know to technology, mm -hmm. but the principles, the underlying principles, apply to technology. You know, to technology, hardware, furniture, anything that you want to um, you know in, encompass within the disability or the accessibility um, uh, field. Um, however, I also want to make sure that I underscore um, a couple of things, or or at least one thing. We talk about accessibility, but it can't be isolated because things can be accessible and not usable. Right. Um, right. Right. So it's really got to be a marriage, a strong marriage between the two of accessibility and, and usability. Yeah, that's something really to remember. And I try to encourage people like we do a lot of good work going to accessibility conferences and talking about accessibility. One gap that I see even in, in the industry, in, in the advocates, is we don't do a good enough job going outside of our own industry and speaking at other conferences. You know, what would it mean for an accessibility advocate to go speak at a developer's conference? And you have to stand in front of a bunch of people who are going, what's this person talking about? Like, you, you have to, I know I've been there. I know I've been there. I went to a, a Pearl and Roku conference and I think 90% of the people left the room. And that's just what we have to, it's uncomfortable, but that's what we have to to do to get more people learning about what this is all about. And you brought up some really interesting things, you know, things that are outside of just technology, being things like furniture or usability. And what would it mean? What would it mean if somebody went to a speakers conference, right? A conference for speakers and spoke on how to make sure that your audience can understand what it is to be to create a usable, adaptable, accessible experience for an audience. Like, what would that mean? And that is something that we don't like really get into uh, often enough. Yeah, yeah, that's that that is very true. There's a lot of ways to tackle this this whole thing. Of 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 late, the last several years, I've been trying to tackle it from a business perspective. You know, from a from, from we we've heard a lot about and we've seen quite obviously investors and venture capital, private equity getting involved in the business of accessibility. And they fundamentally become the drivers of the, of the business and how that business carries out, you know, its mission. But frankly speaking, I find that almost 100% of them don't truly understand 
what it means to be usable and accessible. They don't understand the importance of, of, of the investment in human capital. And human capital means in people with disabilities themselves and how important that is, right? So that's kind of you know been my platform for the last couple of years, trying to drive businesses getting to think a little bit more along the lines of how they have to shift um, their thinking if we're really going to make um, you know a pervasive, accessible world. Absolutely. So let's talk about that human capital. Where do you even start with that? So a business owner says, you know, why should I hire? Why should I engage? Um, why should I create experiences for? And then and then ask from the community. Where do you even start with that? From a, from either a business conversation, a sales conversation. You know, how does that even get started then? Uh, so there are two two ways to look at that. First of all, there's the there's the organization who is the hiring organization, the employer, right? So they've got a whole they've got a plethora of different things that they have to think about when they hire people with disabilities. The the, the mindset problem for them is how am I going to accommodate? Still to this day, how am I going to accommodate a blind person? I mean, they can't use computers. They can't you know interact with the internet. You know whatever networks environment that we have. Uh, uh, you know, how are they going to do that? That's going to be a, a real difficult uh, uh, challenge. And of course, we have all kinds of laws that kind of mandate, you know, equal opportunity and e equal access. They don't really think about those things at the HR level until they have to confront it. Right. So there, there's got to be this um, more, I think, more activity um, like the disability ends of the world or, 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 or the valuable 500s of the world, what they're doing at that level, which is which is really commendable. But getting those HR departments and those employers to start thinking more about accommodating users. And in a digital society, that's taken, you know, since COVID, right? We really are becoming more integrated as a digital society. And so hiring is a whole different, is a, is, is a whole different animal now. And, and actually, I think that makes accommodating users with disabilities or employer employees with disabilities easier because of, of the activity that's been going on the last 25 years with the web and the internet making it accessible. So you've got that. Um, the other side of that is, and it's interesting because I just came out of a conversation with um, one of the founders of Fable and what they do, right? So they become the uh, mediator, if you will, or the bridge, uh, not a mediator, a bridge, right? Between an organization that needs to design, develop, whatever, right? right? in the uses with disabilities and integrating them into the design and development process so that um, they, they, these companies don't have to think so much of, I got to hire people to do, I don't know people with disabilities, I don't know, even know what to think about, what kinds of technologies they use, because they've got someone like a Fable, Open Inclusion's got, you know, they, they've got their, their team, I know uh, Sharon Rush has Access Works, but you've got this organization that goes and helps you bring people with disabilities into the development life cycle, and now, now I can understand better how to design and develop and, and roll out something that is hopefully usable and accessible. So those are those are things I think that need to be done, and and we're seeing some good success there. Yeah, and and, and I like the, even the way that you're putting that. The way that we're having this conversation is, uh, first off, I didn't hear you say we need to vilify the executives, the senior leadership, the directors who don't know. It's almost 
dangerous to bring up the fact that because someone is ignorant towards what it is to have a disability, especially a very specific disability that maybe someone isn't aware of. I mean, the general population, let's say that outside of the group of people who are listening right now, it's, <laughs> it's you know, we attract the right types of people outside, outside the people who are listening. When you say disability, people are thinking wheelchairs, blindness, uh, deafness, like that's it, like the broad, the very broad aspects of it. Most people don't know simply because of they just don't know. They've never spoken to, they've never interacted with in a meaningful way with somebody who is neurodivergent. And it's right. very difficult to understand what the requirements are for somebody who ha who is neuro uh, neurodivergent to work at an organization. I'll admit myself, I host a masterclass and I'm also hiring for uh, a video uh, editor role in my business. I'm getting applications from people who have different disabilities. I don't know. I've never hosted somebody who is neurodivergent through my masterclass before. Now I'm learning. Now even I'm learning as somebody who has worked in this industry for a while and it's a learning experience to everyone. So facilitating that let, uh, that uh, learning experience is just so valuable. It's just so valuable for people in the industry. It's okay for people to come and say, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm nervous to speak to, to somebody yeah. about that. And, and, and to just carry on what your, your very theme there is that People don't know because I don't think that there's enough of us out there talking about it. We're trying. We've got a we've got a, a close knit international global society, so to speak, of our own. But there's not enough people speaking to it and speaking at the various levels across, you know, whatever the enterprise level organization looks like, um, hierarchy up and down or left or you know however you do it. There's not enough of us to educate them. So everything and anything that we could do at that level is 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 a is a plus. Uh, motivation. We talked a little about that. I start. I think we started talking about that when we talked about that coaching mindset because I think I think that motivation a really nuanced topic. I mean, both from the point of view of the business owner, the organization that someone's working for, but also from the individual themselves trying to work in. How do you even approach that? Let's just say first from like a business owner's point of view because maybe those the the rooms that you're most uh, like participating in it sometimes. Yeah, well, um, you know, that kind of goes back to something we talked about earlier. The motivation the last decade or better, frankly, has unfortunately been the stick, right? And lawsuits tend to be uh, the big the big motivator. It's funny, when I, I started down a path in my career of thinking, okay, we've got to develop laws because we were already working on 508, 504, 255, and I was working on those committees. And the great thing about laws is they establish a motivation because organizations and companies have to meet the law, those laws. If they, in this case, they want to sell in the U S to the U S mm -hmm. federal government. So that seems like a good motivation. The problem is, is that it also creates a minimalist mindset. So now companies are saying, okay, we need to do this because the law says it, I can't sell anything to the, to the federal government. So just, do these things, yep. bare minimum, minimal requirements. That's all we want to do. Well, that doesn't work, right? Because we want, the, there's a lot more that has to be done above and beyond that minimum criteria. Then I started saying, then people started, then the lawyers got involved and started saying, well, now that you're not doing this, we have to enforce the laws and Americans with Disabilities Act gets in there. Let's start suing you and that will push you. I, I literally gave a talk at the UN on this very topic and that was 15 years ago. Fear-based incentives don't work. Because fear-based incentives also create that minimalist mindset. We don't want that. Then I changed my mind. I said, no, because no one's doing it. We, there was, let companies, let companies and organizations 
be creative. Think of how, and I saw a lot of this when we were doing the Section 5 weight committees. I saw a lot of this. Let us do our own thing. We'll create the solutions. Don't worry about it. We, you know, we're, we're heavily vested in this. And we let time go by, and they didn't. They really didn't change. So then I started saying, okay, sue everybody. I literally, so it's this back and forth thing. So it's this, you know, that we constantly go back and forth with sue them, don't sue them, you know, drive them to laws, create more laws, create more standards. And none of it seems to work. However, at the business level, I truly believe that one of the challenges that we've had in the accessibility industry is that we've not been able to create a business value proposition that that a business can come back to and say, okay, this accessibility stuff is going to actually make me some money. I can actually profit from it, right? I'm not saying that, that there aren't companies out there that are not making a profit doing accessibility, but when you really look at them, it's usually the accessibility companies, not the big corporation. That's what we're really trying to get to, right? That's not mainstream. Why is that? And I started thinking about it again. I, I've given this talk many, many times. But one of the first times I did it was in Europe when the European standard was being developed. And I said, you know, we need to create businesses will be driven by business value proposition, which means we need to give them a way to make money or to see perceived values. What, what do what do we do? What do what do or what do companies do? Uh, not companies, but what do governments do to create business value? Alternative energy. They go out, they give tax incentives, they give research grants, they fund research grants, they give uh, monetary incentives, right, to help them build their businesses. And we've seen that alternative energy flourish. Right. That has never happened in the accessibility industry. Look at just recently, and I, I want to use this example because it is a little bit closer to us. Look at what's happened to the hearing aid um, uh, industry mm -hmm. because of what the governments have done now in terms of standards uh, and requirements around um, hearing aid compatibility, right? And hearing aid standard. Well, now everybody and their mother, excuse the expression, can create a hearing aid and go out and sell that, right? Right. Because there became a, a perceived revenue value proposition for doing that. That is something that we need to do in our industry. And I'm convinced that until we do that, until we convince government, forget the standards and the laws, we've done enough there, leave that to the W3Cs of the world, right? The IEEE's of the world, the EU standards groups and the EDFs of the world, right? Let them go out and create those standards. They'll make technology better. What you need to focus on is incentivizing these organizations. Give them tax breaks, give Absolutely. them research grants, give them the monetary incentives, and that will draw them. Now it's an investment for them and they can drive revenue from it. That's what I, that's what I talk about to organizational leaders. When I get when I get the chance to talk to the C-level folks, you know, that's that's what I'm talking about. When I get a chance to talk with investors, that's what I'm talking that's what I'm talking about. That's very cool. It's it's such a different way to perspective. Uh, I, I love that because I, I also try to encourage people not to shy away from those conversations either, right? The only way that, you know, many of us as in the, the practitioners, the, the, the consultants, the subject matter experts are going to get better at those is to have more conversations like that, right? right. To understand truly what the, what does the business want to hear from you? They're going to tell you if you come up with a presentation and you say, this is good for the world. And they say, I need to know the profits. And, oh, and we can't shy away from that. We need to go and 
do a bit more research and do some digging and find data. And even though that data may not exist in, a, in an easy digestible format, yeah, you got to sometimes spend a month like researching that and coming back stronger with it. I think that's, that's powerful. That's powerful and that's useful. And I've never heard that before that we should or could be offering some incentives before from the government level at the policy level. Who do you speak with then about that? Is that, is that governments then? Like, are, are you pitching to governments, uh, policymakers to go and create those incentives? Yeah, I mean, well, governments are definitely one of uh, of the key players at the, at that level. If they they're the ones that are driving. I mean, you think about how many bailouts we've had. You know, and, and you and I are pretty much talking from a U.S. standpoint, but this is a global thing that you right. know that that needs to happen. Um, but yeah, government is a great starting place. But I'm not convinced governments are 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 the only incentivizers. You know, at this level, I because I've been working now a, a lot more closely over the last few years with investment organizations, with with, with VCs and, and private equity. I think that they can be the incentivizers as well. They've got buckets and buckets of money there. Yep. It's a matter about placing it right. And then buying into the visions, a lot of these organizations that they ha- that they have, one step above, or maybe not above, but maybe in parallel with them is industry at large. So if Google, Microsoft, you know, uh, Amazon, these these Fortune uh, 100, Fortune 500 companies, where they've got cash sitting back in their reserves, and they will tell you, yeah, we are making an investment, but I would tell you, it's not good enough. Mm-hmm. It's not good enough because if it was good enough. Every Microsoft product, every Microsoft platform would be usable and accessible to people with disabilities, and they're not, yep. right? Every Google product, every Google platform would be usable and accessible to people with disabilities, and they're not, you know? And I could go on and on and on with industries, not not to uh, pick on those uh, two organizations. Apple's in the same boat, yep. right? And yep. Apple, Apple started with some great minds and some great people like Alan Brightman and uh, and, and, and Mike uh, Mike Shabanik and, and a few other, Gary Moulton, right? Where these folks, they lived and breathed it and Steve Jobs listened to them and did things about it. But there's still, people are still uh, struggling with voiceover, right? It's just as a simple thing. So I think those companies can incentivize their own organizations because they've got the money to do it. Now, for them, it's about priorities. It really is about priorities. A long time ago, one of my earliest iterations of a company, a close friend of mine that worked for I worked together with him at, at Digital, and then he came and worked for me for a while. He always told me, he says, you know, the problem is, is that essentially CEOs and 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 uh, presidents of companies, they're looking at a top ten list. What are the top ten things that we need to do or develop as a as a an accessibility never makes that list. Never makes it. To this day, that's true. I've yet to come into a company that says accessibility is our number one priority. I've heard them say it's a priority, right? Uh, Jenny and, and Microsoft have, have, have talked about accessibility and we've seen some great progress, but not in the top 10. And I don't believe that it is. And the proof is in the pudding. We see it in a world that where pervasive accessibility does not it's not like air. It's not like water. And that's what we want it to be. When you were talking about incentives, I've actually seen this quite often in large organizations in their procurement process as well. And I see a lot of opportunities there in requiring, we all know VPATs aren't perfect. Okay. Let's put it out there. VPATs aren't perfect, but it is a layer. It is a layer of, okay, if you don't even, if you, if you don't even know what a VPAT is, then it's not allowed. Like you can't procure. Um, we're not allowed to procure your organization or your your company, your service. I we've seen this as well in other DEI 
areas around, you know, supporting and encouraging black businesses and black owned business. Uh, right. um, and these are the types of things that large organizations can do to change or, or like to, to put pressure on, on other companies to, to elevate their standards. This is why I, I try to encourage other people in, in the community to say some of the best things that you can do for the accessibility communities to get a promotion, you know, to sit at that ground layer and to sit in, in, in frustration and chaos. The best thing you can do is if you're a developer, be the best developer that you can become the lead developer, become the director of, of engineering. And then can you imagine if somebody was the director of engineering who cared about accessibility and put that on his top 10 priority list, right? All of a sudden the entire department cares about accessibility, right? Yeah. No yeah. longer are you just a solo player, solo practitioner. You've all of a sudden have, hundreds of people underneath you who care also who must or else they're not going to be they're not going to have a job right uh and, and i try to think of it from that point of view it's a great point and i've talked a lot about uh integrating it and you hear this a lot um into the software development lifecycle, right the selc so there's 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 a big win there you know where do we integrate accessibility and usability I just don't want to separate the, the the two of them. They're 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 a marriage made in heaven to use the expression, right? That that they are closely aligned together. But they are in from from the start of the conceptual model, the idea where it starts with the architects there and works its way through design, development, deployment, marketing, all the way across that board, right? And and you see accessibility is is there, and it becomes an integral part and of an organizational life cycle. It's not yet. It's not yet until until I uh, like we are bringing in some of those skills and we say, I've got my accessibility skill. I've got my HR knowledge. OK, like I care about both. Right. All of a sudden I, I become this this integral person and part of the organization. I'm not becoming, you know, I'll go to the conferences, but accessibility is not my only role. I'm I'm director of HR, I am, I am VP of, uh, head of people. And now all of a sudden I have a different perspective on this whole thing. And how can I bring that work that, that into every layer of my department? I think the future, I think that's really where, where we need to go and embody some of those, some of those leadership principles that many people who are currently in those roles don't have, they don't have the accessibility knowledge. So let's get there. Yeah. I, I would really love to be able to see the next, whatever the next user platform is, I would love to see that accessibility is is built into that into that infrastructure, and and I've seen some pattern libraries where accessibility is built in, and that gives me some hope because those pattern libraries tend tend to be integrated into the platform that you're developing, right? Um, but then but then now you've got another another challenge there, and that's getting the devs to integrate the pattern library and and, and what it's actually doing, right? The modules, the objects, and and things along those lines. But yeah, yeah, I I, I totally agree with you at that level. Uh, I have a bit deeper question to ask you here. What's the mission? Why is why is all this so important to you? Well, the mission is the mission is part of the passion. It's the passion that fuels whatever mission I have. I mean, right now I could say that I don't really have a focused mission. Um, I'm still basically quote unquote semi-retired. Uh, but what drives me, frankly, is my two loves besides my wife: technology and emerging technology and people and particularly people with disabilities. And those, there, there's so much there that, in, that that embraces both of those, that it's enough for me to get up on my soapbox every week, like you're doing here with your podcast, and just get people to go, 
get them to drive forward, get them to think out of the box, stop, get, you know, stop them from thinking, no, it can't be done to, yeah, it can't be done. And all we got to do is figure out how to make it, how to get it done. And I'll give you a classic example. The biggest thing that's going on right now in our world are overlays, right? And everybody's like, ah, oh, you know, these bad, 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 you know, it's like, true, but they involve two things that are dear, near and dear to me, technology and people with disabilities. So my only thinking is, how do we get them to work and work together and make them work, right? And become part of the solution instead of part of the contention. Wasn't that a great episode? You probably have lots of new ideas swirling through your head right now. Now, how are you going to go and teach that to your boss, your team, or your clients? You need a strategy to move forward. Contact me today, hi at cambodwine.com, and let's talk about how we can move this forward in your organization or individual practice. If you could right now, like and subscribe to this show, it really does help grow our reach to get more people involved and interested in disability inclusion and making the world a more inclusive place. And don't forget, you can also watch this show live on LinkedIn. Just find me there. It's every Friday at noon Eastern. See you next week.